Welcome to the Empowered Eating and Living Podcast, where we dive into your inner world to explore all of the psychological, emotional, energetic, and spiritual components that may be influencing your struggle with food and eating. I'm your host, Sarah Emily Spears, a trained psychotherapist and energy worker who recovered from my own eating disorder. And now I help women just like you do the inner work to address the real issues keeping you stuck in your problematic eating patterns. Because I assure you, your problem with food is about way more than food. So join me and guest experts as we discuss the psychology of eating and healing and empower you with tangible steps you can take today to begin to improve your relationship with food and yourself from a place of true nourishment and care. Katie Papo is the creator of the Rewired Eating Framework and host of the Binge Eating to Food Freedom podcast, where she helps you experience genuine and lasting freedom from binge eating, food addiction, and yo-yo dieting. What's wild is that Katie and I met years ago working at a weight loss and fitness camp, and that experience is actually what led both of us to develop an eating disorder, which then led us both to pursue different paths of recovery and healing which ultimately led us both to doing the work that we currently do, supporting women to end binge eating and other food and eating issues. I am so excited for you to hear this conversation with Katie. She is such a wealth of knowledge and she is going to give you hope that no matter how long you've been struggling with binge eating, no matter what approaches you've tried to get better, there is still hope for you. It is entirely possible that you can take your power back from food and experience food freedom again. Hey, Katie, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm excited for this conversation. Katie and I met over a decade ago, 2011. We both were camp counselors at, it was called Wellspring La Jolla, but it was a a fitness camp, summer camp situation. And we were both camp counselors. And that was my first time I had just moved across country to San Diego from New York. So that was my like first taste of of Cali living as a counselor with you. And then, you know, our lives kind of went on different paths and yet they were sort of similar because you went through your own journey with eating and disordered eating, which then led you to become a practitioner. And now you, you work supporting people to find food freedom from binge eating. So I'm really excited to hear about your story and your journey and all the work that you're now doing as a result of that. Mm. Yeah, I. it's so funny that that's where we met because I feel like that place is where a lot of my eating issues even started. So- <laughs> Me too. That was, that was one of the components that also set me on my path. So let's just hear about it. Can you tell me about your story and yeah, all the components that that influenced your struggle and what that looked like for you and then how that led you to to where you are now? Sure, yeah. So um so first of all, I I remember hearing this quote some time ago that was it, it said like just one diet can create an eating disorder. And I heard about this quote when it was already too late (laughs) um, for that to be preventative. But I really understand it now in hindsight, because I I think my journey really started when um, I was a kid at home, just being around my mom who was always on diet. So that kind of mentality started creeping in. But when we were at that camp, my job 
um, I wasn't directly a counselor, but I was like the yoga person for all of the different groups, right? There was the the college kids, the young kids, the families, and the adult women. So I was like with all of the different groups. And um, what I found during that time, because the, the meals were very portioned and everyone was very calorie conscious, you called it a fitness camp. I would call it a weight loss camp for sure. <laughs> I'm being very uh, kind with my language. Yes, you're, you're very, very diplomatic. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm just going to, yes, be nice about this. Um, and I think even though we weren't technically on the calorie plan, being around that mentality so much started creeping into my own mind. And I found myself starting out with some of my worst binges during that summer. And there were actually times at night, it was, it would be like, you know, starting to get dark and I didn't have kids to watch. So I would kind of go off campus and I, there was this little store that, that sold like these, um, they were like the healthy version of Oreos that aren't actually healthy, but you know, they're imitation Oreos and they had peanut butter. And I would go there at night and I would bring my backpack so no one would be able to see that I was bringing unapproved food back onto the grounds. And I would eat that once a night. And every night I would feel so sick eating a whole thing of cookies, a whole thing of peanut butter, and then waking up the next morning and teaching fitness classes where I'm like jumping around and feeling like everything in me. So I'd make these resolutions to myself. That was the last time, you know, like we say as, as addicts, right? Just once that was the last time never doing it again. And I would feel so sick. I wouldn't even want to do it again, but then nighttime would roll around and I'd make my way back to the store and I'd be beating myself the whole time walking back to the store. And then I'd hide it coming back and then repeat the same thing. And at that weight loss camp, I gained so much weight and I had no idea why. And I felt like a fraud because here I am supposed to be some kind of role model or example where I'm the one who's sneaking out. And I didn't make the connection back then. I didn't know that restriction caused binges. I didn't know any of this. I thought what it was a lack of willpower, lack of discipline, or I'm just the worst. You know, I was beating myself for all of these reasons, not really knowing what I was getting into. And that was when it actually started to get bad. And I started, um, you know, what, what a lot of us say, oh, well, that was the last time. So I'm definitely not going to do that again. Starting tomorrow, I'm going to be really good. Or, ooh, that was a bad one. I need to be even stricter tomorrow, which of course perpetuates the cycle more. So that was really the start of it for me where it got to the point where it was impairing my actual functioning and sense of self, I think. And I bet so many women listening can relate to everything you just shared because it's such a common experience. And yet we think, oh, it's me. Like I, I have this fundamentally flawed, you know, willpower issue. Why can't I control myself around food? And we, we all can relate to that cycle of this is the last time I know it very well. You know, I tell my, and I would justify one more binge because this will be the last time I ever do this. 
Therefore, let me get just like a few extra cookies and one more thing of ice cream because I, this will be the last time I eat those forbidden foods. And then, you know, you feel the guilt and the shame and you beat yourself up. And then it's the vow to be, for me, you know, perfect the next day. And round and round we go. It's a slippery slope the moment that you start to restrict either the, the quantities of foods or the, the types of foods that you could have. And for us at that camp, it was a like no fat, low fat protocol. So I know for myself, like I, that's what I would crave, right? Going and finding these like fatty foods because we literally didn't have access to those in this space. It was that restrictive. For sure. I was literally jars of peanut butter. Like I would eat half a jar to a whole jar in one evening. I don't even like peanut butter, but, but you're right. A lot of the times, the things that we restrict are the things that we crave the most. I see it now that low carb is the thing for people. So I'm seeing people eat craving breads and pastas and pastries. And of course, of course we will. And I'm curious if you're open to sharing your sort of opinion on the protocol of the camp, because I know for myself going in, I felt so naive. I really trusted that these were experts who knew and understood health and nutrition. And so I like wholeheartedly committed to following this plan in the name of being healthy, not realizing how unhealthy it was actually for my physical body and mental body. And I think so many people, you know, we all have so much misinformation in the world around diet and nutrition. And with good intention, people start to follow these recommended plans from the experts and unintentionally set themselves up to start to struggle with these sorts of patterns. So in hindsight, like what are what are your opinions on sort of that strictness of the no fat, low fat? Approach? I would never in a million years now follow anything like that. And I've seen it even before then I would see with my family members, specifically my mom, who would really put her faith into these experts. And the thing is, they're all experts, right? Quote unquote experts with completely opposite opinions that in theory all work until they don't. And there are a variety of ways to help people drop weight really, really quickly. But does that mean it's sustainable? No. Does it mean it's healthy? No. And does it mean it will even um, help you build healthy habits? A lot of times it will create the opposite effect. I know for me, the more educated I tried to, I tried to make myself, the more information I had, the worse my eating actually got. And it's not to say that education makes us binge. That's not what I'm saying. But when we get so um, rigid about the rules and following the rules, and this is the best way. And really, I think the, the main point is when we put our faith in these plans above our own bodies, that's where the problem is. Because it's one thing if you follow a plan and you're listening to your body And your body is in so much agreement with this and your body's like, yes, and I feel good. And that makes sense. Right. But, but the body, I believe needs to lead the way. And if we're, the body's the only one who's doing the eating, right? The body doesn't give us a stamp of approval just because a nutritionist recommended it. I used to drink green smoothies because 
I read in a book how great they were. And I'm not saying green smoothies are good or bad. That's not the point. But for me, whenever I would drink a green smoothie, I would look like I was four or five months pregnant. And I would get this huge bloated belly that was like hard as a rock. And I'd be extremely uncomfortable for hours. So regardless of whether or not someone can prove to me scientifically, whether that's healthy or not, my body was giving me a hard no. So I think the problem isn't even necessarily that um, we educate ourselves or that we take advice from other people. It's that when that trumps our own body listening, that's the real issue. Absolutely. It's giving our power away to the authority instead of defaulting back to our body as that ultimate authority of what's right and best for your body. Because that expert is not in your body and doesn't have the same genetics and life history or unique health factors that your body has. And so it's helpful to take it into consideration, but always default back to, to self, which can also be hard. Like for you, was that challenging to start to learn how to like listen to your body and know what your body actually needed? Because I know for myself, when I started binging and then binging and purging, I stopped trusting my body. I had no idea what my cues were or what it was telling me or how to listen because I was so disconnected. Yeah, I think one of the biggest factors that I at least see with people is we confuse our mind's messages with our body's messages. And especially even culturally, we tend to be a bunch of floating heads walking around thinking, worrying, planning, organizing, and we forget that we have bodies um, beneath our necks. And the, the, the big thing about that is when we're that disconnected, then we start to think, oh, what does the body want? But that's still in the mind. It's still a thought. We're not actually feeling, we're still thinking. So for me, I think a lot of the work that I had done prior with yoga and meditation and other modalities that just helped me tune into the body gave me a bit of an edge where I could distinguish between mind messages and body messages. But I remember one point early in my recovery, I gave myself a little exercise to do while I was eating and I made two columns and the first column said what the body says. And then the second column said what the mind says. And I just started slowing my eating down enough where I could tune in, feel rather than think and pay attention. And I would write down something like, you know, the body says, you know, I'm hungry now, or I, and it would change throughout the meal, of course, but I would make these little notes. And then the mind would say something like, you shouldn't be eating that, <laughs> you know? So um, that was one of the first little initial exercises I gave myself to, to even recognize that there was a difference, that there were a couple different feedbacks that I was getting and which to trust and which to not trust. And the body, when it comes to eating, at least is the more trustworthy entity than of course the mind. I think that's such a helpful exercise and way to start to help people differentiate between body signals and the mental kind of ugh, garbage sometimes that we wrestle with because we're so consumed in the mind and, and it can be really confusing if we're trying to think what's right for us. And this exercise could be really cool for people to, to just try, you know, and, and see what they learn about themselves just through going through that. 
So I'm curious, coming back to your story. So camp was really the springboard where you kind of dove into these patterns and the cycle really started this binge restrict cycle. And then what happened from there? I went deeper into that, that world. So I actually, I got a a position at a different kind of comparable camp that was only for adults though. And, uh, and then I went on to become the director of that place. And when I became the director, I did change quite a few things. However, there were certain things that were beyond my control and, there was still the count calorie counting and things like that. It was more balanced, I will say, but the energy to me, it's, it's, it's the energy of restriction. It's the energy of scarcity. That is the real culprit of what's behind the binge. So even if someone is getting an adequate amount of calories, for example, when the energy of scarcity is still there or the energy of deprivation, it doesn't matter. So I found my eating as I lived there because, you know, it's residential. So I I lived there too. My eating just got worse and worse. And I even remember there was one night a week that uh, there was a food addiction support group that we held. At at this place. At this place. Ah. And somehow I became the person who was running that group. Uh, And it started out as like a behavioral therapist. And then I don't remember why it was passed on to me, but I would sit there and I'd give what I felt was, you know, good advice, things that I was trying to follow myself. But being in that group alone was so triggering for me because now I'm hearing about all of the cravings that everyone's experiencing and all of this restriction. And I am such an empathetic person. Someone starts crying. I'm crying too. Like I feel it all. So I was feeling and taking on everyone else's stuff, even more than just my own stuff. And after those meetings, I would drive to the pizza place and I would get a whole pizza for myself and I would sit in my car. So no one would see me and I would eat the whole thing and then go back. And I felt so extra guilty when I would do that, because not only am I hurting myself, but now I'm also a fraud. So it, it, it became deeper and deeper for me. And even though, yes, we we're helping people in some ways, ultimately I started questioning, like, why is this happening? beyond just what's wrong with me. And also I started questioning, why is it that people seem to do so well here? And then they come back the next summer trying to lose the same weight. It's great for business, right? But it's not great for them or for health. It's one thing if this is the kind of vacation you want, but most people come because they need it, not because they want it. And we were also weighing people every single week. So I would watch the rituals of the weighing and I would see people kind of starving themselves before the weigh-in, take every single thing they could out of their pockets, take off their shoes, take off their bracelets. So there was no extra ounces. And even just the energy of that, I believe, creates the scarcity, creates the deprivation because now it's all about the number. Now the body's totally disregarded. In fact, I won't even drink water to hydrate my body because I don't want to weigh more. That's how 
far this can go. And I know if anyone, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have done Weight Watchers and stuff like that. You, We've all seen this. So I felt like that experience for me after it ended, even though the whole place was filled with well-meaning people, lovely, like the loveliest of people who would never want to do harm to anyone, myself included, we didn't know what the heck we were doing to people, to our, to myself. I had no clue. That connection became clearer later. Which is giving me full body chills because this is one of the biggest parts of the issue is the, the programs that are there to help people. It's like you and I were doing what we thought we were supposed to do, what we were taught. And until you start to really question the status quo and what is sort of the norm right now, like you are, then we just continue to recreate and perpetuate harm, not knowing, like no one gets into this industry because they want to harm. It's because we want to help <laughs> because we value health, because we don't like to see people suffering, right? Your empathic heart, like seeing everyone around you suffering was like, okay, clearly this isn't working, you know? And that was a wake up call for you to really start to question kind of how we're doing things and saying, okay, this doesn't make sense. And maybe this actually isn't helping. In fact, maybe this is harming and how do we do it better? And I appreciate you sharing this so candidly because I also encounter more commonly than people might realize people in the health profession, nutritionists, fitness instructors, you know, for me, mental health therapists, eating disorder therapists, you know, we, we pursue these professions because it's something that matters to us and many of us are struggling secretly and so this imposter syndrome and hypocrisy that everyone struggles with internally is pretty prevalent it's crazy how often this happens but it's also beautiful when i see so many people professionals saying like enough and really working on shifting the entire quote unquote industry to actually work better. Hmm. It's amazing. And, and I'm sure you have too, like worked with professionals who have struggled with disordered eating and it can be scary because it's not just a, a personal inner change that we're doing, which is already scary enough, but then it's like our career on the line. Like, is this, will this affect my livelihood? Will this, you know, there's a lot at stake. So it takes a lot of courage. I think when, you know, those of us who step up to make these changes. So um, anyone who's listening to this episode know that you are in good company. Even if you feel like you're not, this is, this is real common. Yeah. And so for you, what were some of those changes then that you started to make that helped you start to heal and, and shift out of those patterns? So I know you, you have a Reiki background, so I feel Uh like it's okay to say something a little, a little, what might be considered woo woo here. Um, so I was, I, I actually, part of the way that I purged was exercise. I never vomited or anything, but I did over-exercise to a kind of a ridiculous point. And uh, one of those summers at that place, we did a 5k like as a group. 
And I injured myself by running too fast without proper warm up because of my ego. And I was in a wheelchair for a short time. I was walking with a cane and crutches. Like I really hurt my leg and I could not exercise the way that I had been. So all of this fear came up. Oh my God. I'm going to be obese if I don't figure this out. Like before it was enough to just compensate and just kind of ignore the problem and just figure if I exercise more, it would take care of it. So I was at a yoga ashram and after this injury, someone recommended, uh, cause I had tried already like the mainstream conventional stuff, physical therapy, um, chiropractic, all that stuff I had tried. And then I still had so much pain in my leg. And so someone recommended theta healing, which is a type of energy healing. And so I go to see this woman and I walk into the room, I sit down and she looks at me and I'm here to talk about my leg, but I sit down and she goes, so how long have you had an eating disorder? And I was like, I don't have an eating disorder. Cause I always imagined an eating disorder as anorexia or like, you know, hunching over a toilet, like that kind of eating disorder. So I said, I don't have any news source. She said, you sure about that? I was like, yes. (laughs) And I don't even think we got into it there, but even just her saying that was enough to send me to Google (laughs) to like look up binge eating and all of this stuff. And I realized like there was a name for everything that I was experiencing. And I started going down the rabbit hole of different types of treatments and all that stuff. And none of it resonated with me. It all felt like it was what I had always done that made my problem worse. And intuitively, I felt like um, there had to be an out of the box way. And I usually solve things in an out of the box way in every area of my life. So it was natural for me to go out of the box pretty early on. But I thought, There has to be an out of the box way where I'm not just subscribing to this idea that I have an eating disorder for the rest of my life, because all of these methods were like how to manage your eating disorder. It's like, I don't want to manage this. I'm not going to live with this. Like it wasn't even a question. So I knew I was going to solve it. And now that I knew that there was like a name for what I was experiencing, I was unstoppable to solve this. And I didn't care what it took. And then I came across this book, which is very old book. I found it in like a crawl space of some old hotel. It was like a weird thing, but um, it was called the seven secrets of slim people, I think. And I just read like the first, maybe 30 pages or something like that, but that was all I needed to read. And it was all about how diets are actually the thing that make people fat. Like I'm, I'm kind of using their words, but um, that was the premise of, and it talked about these studies that showed that when you restricted people, they actually gained weight and all of this stuff. And I thought, oh my gosh, all I need to do is just align my thinking and align my behaviors with that of quote unquote, normal eaters. And I read, and I, that's when I started to see very clearly why I was making this worse for myself. So it was a scary jump because of course, if I say, you know, a lot of us say, well, if I stop restricting, then won't I just binge eternally? I'll never stop eating. Exactly. So that was the fear. But I also know, knew firsthand that what I was doing was also causing me to never stop eating. 
So I was willing to take that risk for myself. And that's kind of how I started that path. Wow. That theta healer moment was pretty confronting, but also in the grand scheme of things, what a divine moment for you to really help you become aware, like wake up to what was going on. And I think with binging, that is one of those eating disorders that most people don't always immediately think of as an eating disorder. It's just that willpower or, you know, just stop eating sort of mentality. And we tend to just think of anorexia and bulimia as the standard. And so, you know, a lot of people can find relief in, in realizing, oh, <laughs> oh, like there, there's a name for this. And once you have that awareness, then you get to empower yourself to find the right people to support you in, in getting out. And um, you now have created your own sort of path to food freedom. I think you call it the, the rewired eating framework. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to hear a bit then about how you took what you were starting to realize and learn and, and use it to create a method and process that now helps other people forward too. And I also just wanna say, I love your fire. Your determination, you were like, I'm gonna solve this no matter what it takes. And here you are, you're like, ah, look at that. Oh, yeah. Into yeah. the power of intention. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Pass Katie. <laughs> so yeah, well, when I first started working with others, I didn't have a name for a method or anything like that. All I knew was the system that I knew that worked because not because it's mine and it's great or any of that. It's just a very systematic way to come back to your own body. And because your body knows what it's doing, it's pretty foolproof because it takes you back to you. And I believe that good teachers or good mentors, they don't tell you to follow them. They guide you into yourself. So that was where this framework was born was to help guide people back into themselves, but very specifically around eating issues. So uh, there's four, let's say, phases to the rewired eating framework. They all start with re, so it's pretty easy to remember. And I'll just preface this by saying rewired eating, it's this way of rewiring, yes, your brain around your mentality around food, but it's also rewiring your body to be the dominant force when it comes to your eating habits, as opposed to being driven by your brain, which has been for the lack of a diplomatic word, brainwashed by all of the diets and that kind of stuff. So it starts with the reset phase, which is all about the pause, essentially stopping the train where we can, you know, when we're in that out of control, compulsive uh, frame of mind there, we can't see anything. I compare it to being on a speeding train where if you're in a speeding train, that's going hundred miles an hour and you look out the window, everything's a blur and you can't see anything clearly. And I know that with me, with food, that's how it felt. Even if I knew logically, I shouldn't be doing what I was doing. And I had all the reasons and it, and the night before I literally made a list of other things to do instead of binge, I still would fall prey to the, the compulsion instead of going with the logic. So this part of the process 
is about slowing down so we can actually see what's happening and make conscious choices rather than acting out of compulsion because, and you don't even have to do it perfectly because even if you start slowing down a train by 50%, yes, things will still be a little bit blurry when you look out the window, but you can see, oh, that's a sign. Oh, that's a house. That's another car. You can start to see things more clearly. And then once you really slow down, then you could see that little squirrel over there. You know, you can see a lot more. So when it comes to food, you can feel your own body sensations. Finally. If we're not still, we cannot feel, especially if we're already a bunch of floating heads. And, and it also allows us to see our thoughts from a more objective frame of mind rather than just listening to our thoughts as blind truth. And with that reset, it's really the premise for everything else. Like if we want to be able to feel our hunger signals or feel our fullness signals or feel any body signals at all, we need to have that initial pause and train the body down that path. So once the reset is established, which we do that many times again and again and again, once the reset is established, then we can move on to the receive phase. And the receive phase is is happening naturally because essentially what it is, is receiving your body signals. We don't have to actively look for them. We just have to open ourselves and calm ourselves and still ourselves enough to be able to receive them. And then they come, right? I, I do this exercise with my clients and in, in workshops and stuff all the time. When I have people, you know, close their eyes and we calm their breathing and we bring some awareness to the body, suddenly they realize I'm thirsty or I'm exhausted or my knee hurts. And all of those sensations were there before. It's just that now you were able to receive them. You were able to notice them. And once we've received a signal, then we can move on to the next phase, which is the respond, where we, where we essentially choose a response. How do we want to respond to the body now, given what we know? Shall I get up from my five-hour marathon at work and have a drink of water? Right. So it can be very simple like that. And we can also apply this to the mind as well. We can receive messages from the mind and decide how we'll respond. We decide, will I actually take this thought seriously and indulge this thought? Or would I like to choose a new thought that would be healthier for me? So, and we can only do this once, right? The reset is established because now we're slowing down and we can see all of this clearly. And then the last phase uh, is the repeat, which is what creates the rewiring. Because if we do this just once, fabulous. We're getting into the groove, but when we repeat it, it's like when we walk down, you know, the same path again and again, we know the way the body remembers the way we can do it in autopilot. That's why when we drive home from somewhere, we can tune out for half the drive and still end up in our driveway, even though we weren't even paying attention. We're like, how did I even get here? I don't even remember driving home. That's how autopilot works. So when we repeat something enough times, we walk down the same path again and again, when the body remembers that path, when the mind remembers that path, now we're in a position where this actually becomes easier as we go, as opposed to diets, which only get harder as we go. This process actually becomes easier and more natural and more effortless until it doesn't even feel like work. It's just how you live. So that's the process. So cool. I love this for so many reasons. One is what I think is helpful for people to remember is if you've been repeating the pattern of binge restrict, binge restrict, binge restrict, 
over and over again, multiple times a day for months, years, decades, right? Then it makes sense that the process you're describing is one that does have to be repeated over and over and over again. But that eventually becomes the dominant way of operating, right? That you start to train your brain and practice makes permanent. So you you do get to reshape these tendencies and how you respond to food or to your body and the level of awareness you have, which is so cool. I really admire that this whole process is based around redirecting someone back into themselves and getting the answers from themselves and their body. And that bit about the receiving, what I was thinking of when you were speaking about that was when it comes to receiving the signals of our body, in this day and age, we have so many external signals that we're receiving, especially on our phones now, like the amount of notifications and on your computer and emails. And on top of that, lights and and crazy environments and kids. It's like, it makes sense why the last thing you're paying attention to are the signals within because there's so much going on outside of you. And so to be able to have that pause to actually like create space to receive what's coming from within and not get overwhelmed by everything external is is really important. Like it just makes sense that in this day and age, we need to be practicing this more and more and more because we're set up to not do that. Exactly. And that's what I always say, because our programs are kind of a mix. We have the formal practice of doing this, but we also say integrate throughout the day. So it doesn't have to be a whole formal thing, but to practice that same principle, that same tool, but apply it to this eating situation or this triggering situation or this eating situation. So that way it's not just, oh, I spent 12 minutes in the morning tuning into myself and then the rest of the day I'm a floating head, but I'm using that 12 minutes in the beginning of the day as the baseline. And now I practice integration in various food scenarios. Yeah. The micro moments throughout the day. Like small repetition over time can really lead to the big changes. Now, when it comes to like trigger foods, do you, you know, some people will say to me, well, I just don't trust myself around that food, or I just can't control myself around that food, or I can't have that food in the house. And you've talked about this mindset piece, right? It's like, if the belief is there, that creates fear around that food you know, then the body's going to respond to that. I'm curious your thoughts and approach to helping people manage those really triggering foods. Yeah, this is fresh in my mind. We just did um, last week, two weeks ago, I did, I made this like kind of smaller, like three day intensive called untriggerable. And so we took people through this process and the essential Um, I would say my essential philosophy around trigger foods is it's the same process that you'd apply to any food, except because you're triggered, it requires you to slow down the train, but slow it way, 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 way down. Because when we're triggered, essentially we're activating our fight or flight our brain isn't working properly, our body is shut down, where we can't feel. It's not even in our best interest, you know, biologically when we're in fight or flight to be able to feel. We need to just act and do whatever we need to do to survive. 
So when we slow way, 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 way down, that's what allows us to really feel. And, and I have, um, I can share a little bit about it here, but in our like more flagship, like signature program, I have this whole library of uh, food experiments, I call them, which is very specific to trigger foods. And whenever someone has a trigger food, I say, and they want to avoid, I say, no, no, no. If you avoid, you are indulging the fear and you will eventually, you're not actually solving the problem. So instead of that, actually lean in to that challenge because we can't change what we don't notice. So you need to actually look at it. And the food experiments kind of give that step-by-step on how to look at it. So I'll give you an example. So um, we had somebody who had uh, ice cream as her trigger food. And she found, she had a little epiphany that I also had with ice cream. So when she was, she, she couldn't trust herself to have ice cream in the house. She would binge on pints at a time and then would, you know, never allow, I believe she even put locks on her freezer because she had kids who wanted to have ice cream in the house. So they would lock everything at night for the mom. So she really didn't trust herself. So of course she was terrified when I said, if you really want to fix this, lean in. And so she takes one of the food experiments and part of it is doing this, you know, practice of feeling. And then another part is a little bit of note-taking to, to gain your awareness and consciousness as you're eating this food. So she's writing down what she's noticing and she's using our questions to, to guide her. And as she's eating, she's noticing that she's not satisfied that the taste is no longer good. Like the taste isn't what she remembered now that she's actually paying attention. And it be at a certain point became too sweet, but she kept wanting to eat. And so she keeps eating and keeps eating. And, and then notices she took a moment to step back and pause and just feel her body. And she realized I am so thirsty right now. And it was, she was basically using like that coolness or the, the, like the liquid ice cream to try to kind of quench the thirst without realizing it. I had done the same thing before. And so she realized that not only was the ice cream not tasting as she remembered, and she was actually satisfied with quite a bit less than what she was used to eating, but she was using it for a reason that wasn't even connected to food. She just needed to quench her thirst. So she became aware of not only was the food not as pleasurable as she remembered, but also that she became aware of other body signals that in the past had been completely shut down. So that was a big eye opener for her. And then she wanted to keep experimenting. So every time she was had a hankering for the ice cream, she would bring it out and um, she would go through this process and go through the food experiment. And she'd have these little epiphanies each time and find herself more and more eating what was satisfying. Like she'd legitimately feel satisfied, which she never had before when she was binge eating, but it required so much less because she was actually present while she was eating. So eventually doing enough of these, maybe three or four times, she, I remember when she posted in the group, she said, today is like a miracle day because I just opened the freezer and totally forgot there was ice cream in the house. And even when I saw it, like, I didn't care because I know that I can have it whenever, but I won't have it if it's not pleasurable for me or not satisfying for me. So it was this, you know, we have to show up and face the fear, but 
when we do it in a way where we're constantly tuning in with ourselves and feeling how we feel as we go, rather than operating out of food rules or out of rebellion from food rules where we're still in the mind, she was really tuning into her body more and more and more and learning how to do that instead of um, being carried away by the fear of the food. So easier said than done, but it can totally be done. Absolutely. With the intention of practicing the presence and this permission principle that no food is off, right? Getting curious and exploring for yourself, this discovering, oh, what is happening for me with these foods? And moment by moment, it's amazing the epiphanies, right? That can come through with that level of attention. It's amazing. Um, it is. Okay. <laughs> Last question, because I love working with emotions. So I'm curious for you, where you feel emotions come into play with emotional eating? Do you think those can be a driving force for the binge? Or um, do you think emotions could be irrelevant when it comes to the eating patterns? I think emotions can be an asset. And I feel that those of us, and I'll raise my hand, who have a history of emotional eating, or we, we have a history of being really uncomfortable with our emotions and we'll do anything to not feel them. I've noticed that when we actually learn to same principle, lean in to our emotions and actually feel what they feel like and feel how the body feels when we're experiencing them and get curious instead of judgmental about it, they can become a huge asset. And, um, they can be just like body signals. They're not enemies. They're messengers. So if we can learn to treat emotions as messengers, we can better take care of ourselves ultimately. So if, if you struggle with emotional eating, for example, if you, let's say, finished your day at work and you have this desire to emotionally eat, that's a message to tune in and explore what your needs actually are, which may or may not be connected to food. They could be, but they might totally not be. But when we, um, I think a lot of very well-meaning people, they promote in order to combat emotional eating, they'll say like, oh, just make a list of things that make you feel good, like bubble baths or taking a walk or calling a friend or you know, blah, 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 painting your nails. And then they'll say, just choose one of those things whenever you feel the desire. But that's still not listening. It's just, I mean, maybe you'll get it right by chance, but if you don't learn to tune in, you're not actually satisfying any real need. So if you notice, oh, that urge is there. I also have this with smoking. I used to be a smoker. So if I feel that urge to smoke, that's a, a clue that on some level, something needs to be addressed. I need to take care of something. So when I tune in, I can see, oh, I need rest or I need time alone or I need a day off, or I need, you know, and I can gauge what I actually need. So I think that it can be actually a huge asset, a huge blessing when we do have those big emotions, because then we can get much clearer messages and, and they're a cue to tune in. That was one of my biggest ahas for my own personal journey, because I used to get so frustrated every time I'd have an urge or a craving or an episode. And then when I started to realize, oh, these are literally the windows into myself, like every time that happens and the bigger the urge, it's like the bigger the thing within that I need to 
to address. And so realizing that this wasn't what's wrong with me, but it was like, oh, pointing me back to myself changed everything for me. And that's exactly what I'm hearing you describe is really like, again, you know, people will come to us. Maybe you've experienced this. It's like, tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. It's like, well, here are some things you can play with or try, but I don't know what you're going to need in that moment. That's for you to discover. And you get to start to return back to yourself. And for you, it's a listen and receive and notice what happens when you do that. So it's really a process of like, I feel like repairing the connection with the body and with self in a loving way versus trying to just follow rules, whether it's a diet rule or the rules of the program. It's like, no, here, here's the guide work guiding you back to yourself. Mm-hmm. And then it can be applied to everything. Yeah, Every absolutely. Area. Yeah, because you're more present to yourself. And, and your intuition and what feels right or wrong or is a yes or a no. What would you advise someone who is currently struggling? They're on that binge restrict cycle. They're feeling hopeless because it feels like everything they try doesn't work or, you know, the diet works short term, but then I gain it all back. And, you know, they're at this place of just despair and needing some hope that it's not uh, hopeless for them, you know, that they're not the one exception, that it's actually possible that they could improve this pattern, even if it's something they feel like they've struggled with their entire life. The sort of final pick me up for anybody who's at that point. Yeah. I mean, first of all, don't you dare trust that brain right now? (laughs) Cause that is just, it's just not true. It can't be true because When you were a baby, you weren't born with a diet book in your hand. You were born with body signals and you cried when you were hungry and you refused to eat when you were full. And this is natural to you. So this is actually your body's preferred way. You've trained yourself out of it. But the way back into it, because it's the natural way, that's much, much easier. What you've done already, that was the hard part. Nothing is harder than that. Coming back to your your body and your natural way of living and being, it will take the work and the practice, yes, but it is so much easier than what you're doing now, and it will only get easier from there. So join one of our programs (laughs) because we've walked that path and we're here to make it easier for you and, you know, follow your intuition on what feels right to you on how to give yourself the support that you need in order to fix this. Because when you, um, when you can release this chapter of your life where you're struggling with food, everything's open. You can focus your attention then on anything you want. You can focus it on your loved ones, on your passions, on your career, because now your brain is free. Your body will is healing and will will heal. And yes, of course, there's moments of hopelessness and despair. And we know that so well, too. I can't even count the number of times I've laid in the dark, like crying over a jar of peanut butter. I I know it. But at the same time, you wouldn't be even listening to this episode if there wasn't that fire in you that knows on some level that this is healable, that this is fixable. And if you've struggled for like, let's say a long time, 
20, 30, 40, 50 plus years, you are the epitome of someone who doesn't give up. You can trust yourself because even with all of that hardship and all of that turmoil that you've gone through already, you're still here and you're still seeking solutions. That enough is proof that on some deep core level, you love yourself. The end. Beautiful. Yeah. No, that you haven't given up on yourself. You're here still looking, seeking the path forward. And so if anyone listening is lit up listening to Katie and they're curious to learn how they could connect with you, work with you, what are ways that people can get in touch? Go to my website, katiepapo.com. We have different offerings depending on where you are in your journey. We have self-study. We have videos. I have a podcast as well. You can check out. You can put us both in your little follow, click the follow button. Um, Just give yourself what you need. Give yourself what you need right now. Meet yourself where you are um, and feel free to reach out also anytime. I am I am the person who responds to emails. Yes, my assistant's there too, but I still like to connect with everybody. So feel free to reach out anytime and I'll be happy to help too. Amazing. We'll include that information in the show notes as well. And I just want to wholeheartedly thank you, Katie, because I really personally resonate with your journey. I think we've walked alarmingly similar paths and... <laughs> have both in what I find fascinating is not having studied together or, you know, gone through the same trainings. We've really arrived at similar places and our beliefs around healing and the path forward, which for me is confirming like, Oh, we're doing confirmation that like what we're teaching and preaching and, and the ways that you're choosing to serve is really, it is the way forward that isn't perpetuating the harm, but actually offering the solution because you're guiding people back to themselves and back to their body and empowering them to be the ultimate authority on themselves instead of continuing to rely on all of the misinformation that we tend to default to. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I was, I was, when I saw you reach out, I said, I remember you. So I was really happy to hear from you and I'm grateful to hear that you're also doing this work and, um, being a mover and shaker and, and helping people heal. Yeah. We get to keep the fire blazing forward for true change and transformation and healing. Thanks Katie. So welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning into the empowered eating and living podcast. If you liked today's episode, make sure to follow the show so you don't miss future episodes. And if you loved it, then please share this episode on your social media or send it to loved ones who may benefit from listening too.